Thanks for listening to another message from Life Christian Church. We hope it challenges and encourages you and helps you to grow in your faith. Don't forget, download our app to stay up to date with what's going on at Life. Share your prayer requests or pray for others. Read the Bible online and much, much more. Simply search for Life Christian Church in your app store. So uh, picking it up today from Romans 5 and 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's a, a big passage, but there's three things that Paul uh, repeats. And if we don't understand the context of why Paul says these things, we might feel that it's a little bit unrealistic because on three occasions Paul says, or he uses, the word rejoice. He says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I would suggest that because he is repeating this word rejoice, uh, it's actually something that he's drawing attention to. It's like this is one of the key lessons that I want you to pull out of this. So this morning I want to talk about these three good reasons that Paul gives us to rejoice. Now if you don't understand the context, which we'll get to, uh, you'll, you'll end up saying, well, what do you mean rejoice? I've got absolutely no reason to rejoice. I've had a terrible week. It was a terrible week at work. I've argued with my spouse all week. The kids are driving me crazy. Nothing seems to have gone right. And yet here you are this morning telling me to rejoice. Well, context is everything. So let's look at the context. Chapter 5 begins with the word therefore. And it's a really important word. Uh, often in Bible college, they'll say, uh, whenever you see the word therefore, you've got to ask yourself what it's there for. Uh, and, and it's true because uh, when you see the word therefore in the Bible, uh, it's a link between everything that's gone before and what's about to follow. So what has gone before? Because if we understand what he has been talking about earlier, then we will understand the context of what he's about to say next. So let me summarise the earlier chapters where we've already looked at uh, through this series. Paul, number one, explains the problem with the human race. The problem is that our sin has separated us from a relationship with God. More than that, we find ourselves under the wrath of God. More than that, 
we find ourselves facing the judgment of God. Now, that's the harsh reality, but it's true. But then halfway through chapter 3, he suddenly says, but now, and again, there's two little key link words. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And here is the truth of the gospel. Gospel means good news. Here is the good news, friends. Jesus, in obedience to the will of his Father, became a man. He lived a sinless human life. He became the substitute for men and women on the cross, fully satisfying the the just wrath of God satisfying the judgment of God. And as we looked at last time, our debt, praise God, has been paid in full. And as a result, when we put our faith in Jesus, we are what the Bible calls justified. And it's kind of a legal term. It means that justice has been satisfied. There is no more judgment for you to face. There is no issue to face. Our debt has been paid in full. Can I hear an amen? And as a result, when we put our faith in Jesus, Paul uh, begins chapter 5 with the word, therefore, basically saying, well, That's the good news. How does this then play out in everyday life? How does it play out in our experience? What are the consequences of the gospel, the consequences of the good news in our life? And this is what we'll be looking at as we go forward. But the first thing he says here in chapter 5 is rejoice. says it three times. Rejoice. Now, this is not just some cold command that you just got to grin and bear it. That, you know, absolutely nothing within me feels like rejoicing, uh, but I'll do it because the Bible says I should do it. No, Paul is saying that the very reason we are able to rejoice is that we carry with us the knowledge of what Jesus has done for me. We have a reason to rejoice regardless of what is going on in our lives. And Paul is saying that one of the characteristics of someone who is justified and reconciled to God is that their life is characterized by a healthy rejoicing. We live a life characterized by rejoicing no matter what is actually going on in our lives. So as you and I are called to be the church, one of the things that should identify us as the true church of Jesus is that we have a culture of rejoicing, a culture of gratitude, So let's look at these three areas of rejoicing that Paul talks about in this passage. First of all, we can rejoice because in Christ, he says, we have found peace with God. Romans 5 and 1, he begins, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't use the word rejoice there, but he does in verse 11. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Basically talking about the same thing. So we rejoice because we are reconciled. We rejoice because in being reconciled, we now have peace with God. What does it mean, peace with God? Well, the Bible talks about two kinds of peace that we experience with God. 
this one is peace with God, but then he also, the Bible also talks about the peace of God. For example, Philippians 4 and 7, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's talking about something different. That's talking about an inner peace. You know, and the world can be crumbling down around you. You can be going through the darkest valley and yet deep in your heart, you are just overwhelmed by this inexplicable sense of peace. And you just know that God is carrying you. You know that God is on your side. Uh, I would suggest if you've been a Christian for any length of time at all, you've probably experienced that on several occasions. I know I have. But that's actually not the kind of peace that Paul is talking about today. That's the peace of God. He's talking about peace with God. Peace with God is not a subjective thing. It has nothing to do with how you are feeling. Uh, It's not something that God just grants you in his mercy in a difficult time. Peace with God is an objective thing which actually speaks to our standing with God, our position before God. It has, it, it, it has everything to do with the nature of our relationship with him. Paul says uh, in part in verse 10, he says, for, once, for when you were God's enemies, and he's talking about our past standing Uh, before God and we were called enemies which is pretty hardcore but that's what we were we were God's enemies but it's a past tense statement we were God's enemies but now this verse where he says we have peace with God is in a present tense and it's because of what Jesus has done that there has been a change from being an enemy of God to now being at peace with God. It's a change of standing, a change of status. So what does that mean? Well, praise God, friends. We have gone from a place of being declared an enemy of God under the wrath of God, facing the righteous judgment of God. But something happened. Jesus stepped in and we've been justified. And as a result, our standing, our position before God is that we have peace with God. God. God is no longer somebody to be feared as a judge. He is now somebody to be enjoyed as a friend. And as a church, friends, we've got to know what it is to rejoice because we are declared a friend of God. But I think we know the reality as well that we have a very real enemy, the devil, who wants to rob us of that joy, wants to rob us of that sense of peace. In the book of Revelation, the devil is called the accuser of the brethren. He loves to accuse us. And uh, one of the things the devil loves to do is to heap condemnation on us. And he plays really, really dirty. Uh, He's a dirty dog and he plays dirty. So in regards to sin and temptation, he says, well, go on, you know, you need to try this. Everybody else is doing it. It's okay. It won't hurt anybody else. It's really fun. It's really good. You won't mind it at all. You really enjoy it. And he tempts us and he tempts us and he tempts us. But then if we give in to that temptation, he does this instant black flip and says, you dirty, rotten sinner. You dirty, rotten sinner. Look at you. You pathetic excuse for a Christian. How do you think God could be possibly interested in you? And he, he is great at bringing accusation. He is great at bringing condemnation. It's his job. He is the accuser of the brethren. And the truth is, friends, both God and the devil speak to us about our sin. 
But when God speaks to us about our sin, he convicts us. When the devil speaks to us about our sin, he condemns us. And the reason God convicts us is not to humiliate us or to condemn us, but to show us a way out and to absolutely liberate us. But then the devil will just heap condemnation and condemnation and condemnation. And there are many of us who actually find it easier to believe that we're dirty than we do to believe that we are clean. But the wonderful thing that we've got to get a hold of is the fact that in Jesus we are forgiven, we are justified and we are brought into right standing with God and we are in that place of being declared at peace with God. There's a beautiful picture in the Old Testament in the book of Zechariah and there's this guy called Joshua and he stands before the angel of God, verse uh, Zechariah 3 and 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Verse 3, now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. And notice standing in the wings there is the devil accusing. And he always wants you to feel guilty about your sin. He he, he loves to make you feel that you do not deserve forgiveness. But friends, we are declared justified. We are justified not on the basis of anything that we have done, but purely on the basis of all that Jesus accomplished at the cross. Can I hear an amen this morning? Again, Paul says, Romans 5 and 6, you see, just the right time when, all, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And there is the wonderful truth. When we were powerless, when we were sinners, Jesus came to rescue us. And I tell you, there is a verse that many of us need to grab a hold of and rub the devil's nose in it. Romans 8 and 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, no condemnation. So that's the first thing. God has dealt, wonderfully dealt. With your past, God has dealt with your sin. You are declared a friend of God. That because of what Jesus has done from you, for you, you have moved from a position of being called an enemy of God to being a friend of God and you have peace with God. You're in right standing with Him. So that's the first reason to rejoice. And man, that's a good one. We rejoice because He's dealt with our past. Then the second thing that Paul reminds us of is that we can rejoice because God has settled our future. He has dealt with our future, Romans 5 and 2. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And we've unpacked this a few times through this series. But in context, the word glory here means the perfect moral character of God. You see... We were created in the image of God, which means we were created to reflect the perfect moral character of God in our lives and in our behaviour. But as a result of sin, that image got marred, something went wrong, and now Paul tells us in Romans 3 and 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, fall short of representing that perfect moral image of God. 
And so as a result of sin, the moral character of God is no longer seen in human behavior. But then Paul writes now in Romans 5 and 2, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the moral character of God being restored into our lives. And friends, if you are a Christian here this morning, and if you are allowing the Holy Spirit free access to every area of your life. He is doing a work and the work of the Holy Spirit is to begin to restore the image of God into your life, into your behaviour and there is this process going on. 2 Corinthians 3 and 18 And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. And that's the process. And he doesn't say we have been transformed. He doesn't say we will be transformed. He says in the present tense, we are being transformed. This is an ongoing work. It means that the Holy Spirit is doing a work in us that causes us to grow in godliness in our character and behaviour. And the easy way to measure that is simply by asking, am I more godly this year than I was this time last year? Am I more godly in my reactions and my responses in the way that I uh, carry myself, the way that I conduct myself and the way that I conduct my relationships, the way that I talk to others and love others? Am I more godlike in my heart and attitude than I was this time last year? Until there comes a day where the Bible says we will be glorified and that process is finally complete, which means you're going to be perfect. So you can turn to your spouse and say, one day I will be perfect. The catch is you will be dead. Because we are not at that stage of completion until we are actually in the presence of God himself. And that's where the process is complete. When we are in the presence of God, we will be glorified. So friends, we can rejoice, two reasons. Number one, God has dealt with our past. And number two, God has given us a great assurance towards the future. He has dealt with the future. So past and the future are taken care of. What about the present? Well, this is the tough one. And we could do a whole series just on this one uh, alone. But he says in verse 3, Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Well, that's a bit of a bummer. I mean, the, the past thing, that was cool. The future thing, that's awesome. But who wants to have suffering and who wants to rejoice in suffering? You can go to any bookshop or find online uh, lots of books on suffering. And they will talk about how to avoid suffering, how to face suffering, uh, how to deal with suffering, how to reduce suffering. Uh, I don't think you will find too many books on how to rejoice in suffering. And yet this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Verse 17 of chapter 8. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now we share in his glory and we like that bit. 
but it says we also share in his sufferings. And that seems to be kind of the catch. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So here's Paul's perspective. Not only does that promise of future glory help us bear up to our present sufferings, but more than that, he's suggesting that God even uses our present sufferings as a tool for his glory to be perfected in us. I hope you caught that. I'll say it again. God uses our present sufferings as a tool for his glory to be then perfected in us. Now, we, we don't go looking for sufferings, but we do experience sufferings. And Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, here's a footnote. We don't rejoice in other people's sufferings. That's just sick. We grieve with those who grieve. We mourn with those who mourn. But when it comes to our sufferings, Paul says we are to rejoice. Why? Because there are two really important words here that he employs. Suffering produces. Suffering can be productive. Suffering actually has a purpose. Verse 3, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And I would suggest in our 21st century Western materialistic self-focused understanding of suffering, uh, I think it's vastly, vastly different to a first century New Testament understanding of suffering. Because as you read about suffering in the context of God's word, it carries with it almost um, uh, a, a sense of honour. I don't know if I'm explaining that well. But a sense of dignity. There is something about suffering that we can draw from, that we can learn from. Hebrews 5 and 8, speaking of Jesus, although he was a son, it says, he learned obedience from what he suffered. The Bible gives us an insight into the, the humanness of Jesus. Uh, it tells us that he, he has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And we know looking at the life of Jesus, he lived anything but an easy life. He did not live a privileged life. And it tells us that he actually learned, he grew uh, through the things that he suffered. And somebody rightly said that we actually learn more from our tears than we do from our laughter. Uh, I've often said, uh, you know, God is more interested uh, in our comfort, uh, sorry, in our uh, uh, more interested in our character than our comfort. And the reason is because character is seldom developed, if ever, in comfort. You see, rejoicing in our sufferings is, is not being masochistic. Masochism is when you take pleasure, you derive pleasure from pain. There is no pleasure in pain, but there is a rejoicing in suffering, not because of the suffering, but because of what the end result is, what the suffering produces in us, because suffering is productive. We can rejoice because it's never wasted. Suffering can be a creative force in our lives. We rejoice in our sufferings, he says, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character and character hope. And friends, the reality is, Suffering will either be a creative force in our lives, producing something positive, 
or it will become a destructive force in our lives, producing anger and bitterness and resentment. And ultimately, it's up to us as to how we respond that will determine the outcome. And you can just drop out. You can quit when things get tough or you can persevere. And understand, friends, I do not dare to make light of the struggles and difficulties that you might be facing right now. But what I want, do want to do is to help you grab a hold of a perspective that helps you not focus on the problem, but to start focusing on what God might be doing in the midst of the problem. Because God saw it coming. And God has the resources, not just to resolve stuff that we don't like, but I think more importantly, to see him in the midst of the trial while you are waiting and while you are praying for the light at the end of the tunnel to get a little bit bigger and a little bit brighter. And yes, you've got to know God is interested in resolving your trials and bringing you through your difficulties. But he is just as interested in redeeming your current situation, whatever that may look like. And for us, not just wasting time trying to pray the bad stuff away, just praying and hanging on and waiting for it to be resolved. But in the meantime, saying, OK, God, what are you showing me right now in the midst of this? What are you teaching me? How are you growing me? How will this be used in the future to glorify you and to strengthen my character? Jesus said in John 16 and 33, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And Jesus rightly acknowledges that in this world there are troubles and there are trials. And he knows that these things are a part of life, but he also recognises that these same trials can be the means by which we come to know God in a far richer and deeper way. And friends, if we continue to question ourselves or question God every time something goes wrong because we have lived with some kind of expectation that bad things shouldn't happen to Christians, then we're going to be confused, we're going to be disappointed, we're going to be angry, we're going to be disillusioned and importantly, we're going to be in error. And Paul says, guys, this stuff happens. But he says you need to know something else as well. It is in these trials, in these difficulties that I actually meet with God in a way that I never could if the sky was always blue and the grass was always green. And friends, we must learn to rejoice because we know that those hard times can be incredibly productive. And friends, here's the lesson. If we are truly being the church, then one of the characteristics of a healthy church is that we are people who know what it is to rejoice. Not a subjective worship that says, well, I've had a great week this week, so I can't wait to get to church and raise my hands and raise my voice and just sing praises to God because God's performance this week has been really, really good. But if I've had a terrible week, I come to work head hung down, uh, feeling very sorry for myself with folded arms, saying, I got nothing this morning. We must learn to rejoice that no matter what is going on around us, that God, number one, has taken care of my past, 
Number two, he has secured the future. And number three, he is in the midst. He is carrying me. He is working with me. He is growing me and developing me. And even in my present trials, my present troubles, he is building my character and transforming me more and more into his image. One of the books that I'm currently reading is a book called Morality by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. One of the main themes of this book is the cultural shift that he talks about over the last 50 years or so, where our world, our our Western culture particularly, has moved from a culture of we, a collective culture of of we, to this hyper-individualistic culture of I, a shift from we to I, and it's very dangerous. Let me quote. He says, if we focus on the I and lose the we, if we act on self-interest without a commitment to the common good, if we focus on self-esteem and lose our care for others, we will lose much else. Nations will cease to have societies and instead have identity groups. We will lose our feeling of collective responsibility and find in its place a culture of competitive victimhood. In an age of unprecedented possibilities, people will feel vulnerable and alone. What a powerful, powerful observation. Did you catch that phrase, competitive victimhood? I mean, if that doesn't sum up our culture today, nothing else does. Totally sums up the world that we live in. And friends, we must, as God's people, live so counterculturally. It bothers me to see Christians buying in to the culture of competitive victimhood. One of the greatest disciplines that we can exercise is to just shut ourselves off from social media, get your eyes off screens and go for a walk on the beach or sit down on a mountain and just take in the sun and breathe in God because creation speaks of God. Find a renewed perspective in God and in who God is and in your standing before Him. Now, I'm not saying that your problems aren't real, that your problems aren't important. I'm not saying that the stresses and pressures that you face are easily dismissed. But I will say that one of the greatest weapons we have as God's people to counter the negative is the power of praise and thanksgiving. Because to rejoice moves us from this subjective position of victimhood which focuses on me and always relates to my current circumstances to an objective position that draws me out of myself and instead focuses upon God and says in the light of all that might be going on in my life, God is on my side. I am loved by him. I am in right standing with him and I have an eternal future and hope that God walks with me today. And that even the pain that God may allow me to go through, it's never, ever wasted. Romans 8, 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Romans 5 and 2. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Amen.